Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Code and the Coding Coders Who Code It. I am your host, Drew Bragg, and I am joined today by the most boring man in Rails, Mr. Matt Swanson. Matt, would you please introduce yourself to the audience who does not know you yet? Yeah, hey, Drew. I'm Matt. I am a Rails developer, and I work at Arrows, building boring Rails applications. You may know me from Twitter or my blog, Boring Rails. Awesome. So for those who are new to the show or just need a refresher, I'm going to ask Matt three questions. I'm going to ask him what he's working on, what a current blocker he has. If he doesn't have a current blocker, he's welcome to share a recent blocker he had and how he got about solving it. And then the last question is something to share something new or interesting that he's recently learned or discovered. It doesn't have to be coding related, but it can be. So Matt, what are you working on? Yeah, the big project I've been working on lately has been rewriting the HubSpot integration for our app. So the way that our product works is you use our application, which is standard Rails app, to build onboarding plans. And then you can also connect those plans to HubSpot, which is CRM. So you can use the CRM aspects of HubSpot to manage all your data about your customers and then kind of attach an arrows plan to do onboarding for your customers and then the data syncs back and forth and all kinds of lovely integration stuff sounds like a blast what's been the most challenging part of rebuilding that integration well we originally started with supporting multiple platforms where we were supporting hubspot and salesforce and we built the first version of this system almost two years ago now and we built it with the assumption that we were going to like have these two CRMs and then we would quickly add another 10 long tail of CRMs and didn't actually ever happen. So we had kind of built this abstraction layer for being able to quickly add different CRMs and then we didn't add any. And in fact, we actually removed the uh, Salesforce support. So we were left with a somewhat generic integration system that was only really integrating with one API. So a little bit of premature abstraction there. Yeah, I think it was one of those things where we didn't know the direction we were going. And so we made decisions that were reasonable at the time, but then fast forward and it's like, oh, we actually have a lot of stuff that's sort of harder to reason about than it needs to be. One good example was because we were making this generic, we didn't store a lot of information about the properties in the CRM that you were syncing data to. We just sort of stored like, here's the ID and the third party system of what this would be. We didn't store like, oh, this is a string property or this is a date property or this is a drop down. And that works fine in the happy path case. But when you let customers set up mappings for how they want to map data, there's nothing that we could really do to stop someone from mapping like a number to a date property. And then suddenly all of the API calls are failing. And when you're trying to like manage rate limits for APIs, you're doing like batch updates and then suddenly one out of the hundred objects you're updating fails. And how do you expose that to non-technical users? And for some of the APIs, it'd be like, well, if one of them is invalid, then none of the properties sync over. And so we had basically six months to a year of firefighting these kind of issues. And whenever they would pop up, we'd try to fix them, but sometimes we couldn't fix them. And then you have to email the customer and That was a lot of the issues we had with the old system, like really informed how we kind of rebuilt this new system. And so now we store sort of like a object schema about all the properties. So we know if they're compatible or not. And then if someone 
well, we would we just basically made it so you can't now make an invalid mapping, right? So if you imagine you have a left-hand side and a right-hand side, and it's like on the left-hand side, you pick a property in our system, and on the right-hand side, you pick a HubSpot property. If you pick a date on the left, then we will only present fields that we know are date properties in HubSpot. Gotcha. So what initially caused you to drop the Salesforce support? Was it just a lack of interest or trying to get more focused? Or was it a little bit of, hey, we want better mappings, so let's just focus our efforts on one? Yeah, we made the decision as a company to sort of go all in on HubSpot. And so that was a top to bottom kind of stopping development of the Salesforce stuff and then building even deeper integrations with HubSpot. So Imagine that we had 20% of an integration and we were hoping to do good enough 20% integration with 10 different CRMs. Now we switch to be doing like 100% in one. And then that also impacts sales and marketing. We could really focus in our marketing on how do you do customer onboarding with HubSpot instead of just customer onboarding as a whole. And it helps with sales as well, just knowing how to help qualify leads. It's like, well, if you are not using HubSpot as your CRM, then you're probably not going to be happy with the product because that's where we have invested a lot of time and the value with that. That was kind of like an intentional effort to focus the company that sort of culminated earlier this year with raising money from HubSpot themselves to kind of build in their app ecosystem. So we get a little bit of help on distribution side from them and we get to help them sort of build out their app platform and sort of stress test that, which has been, I'll say, interesting. All the issues and benefits that come with building on third-party systems. I feel like I can't leave it alone when you're like, that's been interesting. You got to give me more than just it's been interesting. Like what's been something that either really surprised you or really, I don't want to jump already into the blockers question, but what's something that caused you to really go, okay, that was interesting, even if it's more annoying than interesting. The thing that is interesting about building on third-party platforms is there's a couple things and i've done several projects in my career that have gone this way and you find yourself like sort of being limited based on some other group that you don't control so for example one of the blockers just a little spoiler that i've been dealing with recently is part of our integration depends on hubspot webhooks so hubspot sends webhooks for objects when they're created and updated and things like that and when you're building software that is syncing data between two systems, like those are really important to be able to know when things are changed so that you can get the latest copy in, in your own database. But HubSpot doesn't support webhooks for all the things we need. So it's like, well, do we want to build our system based on webhooks and hope that in six months they add the sort of logical ones that are missing? Or do we build a polling system where we're like, hitting like a search endpoint every minute and nobody really likes to do that. It's like a waste of resources. It's more fragile on our end, but at the same time, that's what's required to achieve the outcomes that we need for our customers on their platform as it currently exists. And so then you have to balance that too of, well, should we even use the webhooks at all? If we're going to have to use polling for something, should we just use polling for everything so that the code base doesn't have multiple systems of doing it? And then there's the people aspect of it of like, well, now that we are partners with HubSpot in this marketplace and we have technical account reps and it's like, well, we can forward the feedback to them and we can 
once a quarter, like send them feedback about, hey, these are webhook endpoints that we would really like to have happen. And, you know, there's a public idea board where we could, you know, make posts. And so like we can lobby for change that way, which would help us, but it also takes time away from building the product. And so there's just a lot of things like that where it's not that different from working in a larger company where you might have like a service that your coworkers are working on, but like you are interacting with and you need to sort of advocate for new things to get added. But for us, it's like they're outside of the company and like the company size is like drastically different. So HubSpot is a giant company. Arrows is a less than 10 person company. So there's, it seems like somewhat overwhelming in that point. But then actually, when you think about it, it's well inside of HubSpot, there's really only these three people that work on the webhooks team. And so if we can make a connection and build a bridge with them, then it's, oh, we are the like preferred development partner and they're desperate for feedback in the same way that if you're a product engineer, you might want to talk to customers like we are their customers. And so I don't know. That's why I think it's it's just interesting. It's not necessarily good or bad. It's just something you have to deal with when you don't control the entire software stack. There's a bit of software development that they don't teach you in boot camp or in college, having to work a lot with systems outside and then the people that manage those systems. It's something we all think about our jobs in, hey, I've got to write this code or I've got to build this database table or whatnot. There's a whole area of development that's like, I have to work with this team that may or may not be part of my own company that can really impact how you work. Yeah. And that's definitely like a lesson I learned early in my career. In my previous job, I worked at an agency. And so One of our customers was a big Fortune 50 company and just even dealing with scheduling of like releases for things, there was like a separate team that did like the platform API. And so they were releasing and they had their own like, hey, this 12 weeks, we're trying to release these features. And it's like, well, in our 12 weeks, we're supposed to be releasing these other features and we need changes to your stuff. And so I've always played the role of and when I was on that project, they called me like the ambassador. I was like the ambassador to this other team where I was like. A lot of other developers, I think, would sort of get frustrated and just complain and be like, yeah, I I hate that team or like this product sucks or this is crap. I hate this. We can't do anything. And I guess I felt that way also. But I was I also tried to be like, well, if we can like become friendly with these people and if we help them with some things or make it easy for them to get our stuff in, then it really will enable our team to like move much faster. And from like an agency side of things like that's an advantage too of like if, if our company is like able to get things done more effectively than other companies because we are able to do the political maneuvering then that's an advantage and i think that also sounds kind of icky to some people but if you have good motivations of like we want to ship this feature to customers to help them with something and the fastest way to do that is to maybe do a little bit of greasing the wheels internally then i think that's a noble cause yeah that's something that i've found Not necessarily in my own experience. I haven't had to deal with a ton of that, but through talking to others, I feel like that's something that ends up making a really great manager is a manager will take on that political fight. It's probably the wrong word for it, but that political fight to maneuver things for you and kind of keep the devs working on dev related stuff. But certainly, I mean, as a developer, if you need to go out and do it, then, hey, you've got to do it. You got to ship stuff, right? Yeah, I think there's just like a lot of interesting parallels to that, too. If you're just building a project and you're like, I think maybe like the Twitter API is a good example. 
it's been sort of like a hot button issue because they're making big changes to it. And if you were building a project on that, you're sort of at the mercy of them making these API changes. And I think something similar was happening with Reddit where they made API changes and people are like, oh, my entire project is having to get shuttered. And I feel for those people. And I think the level one take is that's bad. And then like the level two take is sort of don't build on other people's platforms or don't build on like shaky platforms. And I think the level three take that I would try to bring is if you are building a business that depends on this, like you probably should have some kind of relationship with these people. So whether that's having a developer advocate account manager type person that you can at least get on the phone with or get an email to, or whether that's like formalizing your relationship with a strategic investment or a contract or something. I think there's like ways to do it that can de-risk that, that maybe developers don't necessarily want to do, but at least working on this project has been interesting to see how that can benefit us. And a lot of these platforms, it just seems like, oh, well, like I can't do this because the platform doesn't support it. And there is some of that, but first off, you can usually work around some of these things. And second off, these platforms aren't fixed and they do change. And so do actually have influence. And the more you can sort of cultivate like a network of people that actually work at the company, like the more influence you can sort of have in getting things done. It does remind me a little bit of like open source and like upstreaming things. And it's if you're building something in Rails and you're like, well, I can't do this in Rails. It's like, well, okay, you can build a gem. And then if you don't want to do that or you really want it in Rails, it's like there is a process to do that. And maybe it's more work than you want or like the ROI is not there or like you don't necessarily want to do that or have the the skills because it is similar, right? Navigating like an open source project to navigating different services within a company. Yeah. I think one of the most recent and pretty fascinating stories I can think of of that exact scenario is view components. There was some pretty awesome, in my opinion, changes to how some of the rendering works in Rails that was directly because GitHub wanted their view components to be rendered out a certain way. I think view components was even supposed to be completely upstreamed into Rails at one point, and they actually backed off of that, but a lot of the changes that allowed you to just essentially render an object that matched a certain API was because of the work that they wanted to do. Yeah, I think it's a great example. You can say that Rails developers are the customers of Rails, the code base, and so they're bringing the need for something, and probably what they started off with was workarounds and patched into the Rails internals, and they're like, we don't want to do this long term, so let's build the relationships within the Rails core team to make this change happen. And then you can kind of go back and sort of undo all your gross hacks. And you've sort of pushed the framework a little bit closer to where you wanted it to be. can't think of a single reason why you want to maintain a monkey patch long-term. Can't think of a reason. So you sort of hinted at some blockers coming up. feel like this is going to be a good subject and a good topic. What kind of blockers have you been dealing with recently? It's been kind of a slog in general. There's just a couple things that sort of combine that are like notoriously unfun parts of software. There's like working with legacy code, dealing with third-party systems, and then also migrating customer data. And they all sort of combine together to form like what I've been working on lately, right? So we're rewriting legacy systems. So I did some of, but not the primary development on the first version of the integration system. So I don't even have the full context. We're working with third-party systems, which have their own challenges. And then this is not a new Greenfield project. Like 
our entire customer base is using this code every day. So how do we, as the adage goes, change the tire on the car while the car is still driving down the highway at 85 miles an hour? So it's been kind of slow and incremental chipping away of, of things and I'll get blocked on something. And usually the way around these blocks is, well, let's add a feature flag. Let's figure out how do we migrate from the old to the new. Let's try to move as many customers as we can that won't have any issues. Let's flag all the customers that do have issues and then just put on your headphones and get a big Google sheet of all the customers that have issues and just go through one by one and see, is this something that we can resolve? Is this something that we feel comfortable resolving for the customer? Is this something that we need to interact with the customer? And hey, this is something we need to email or get on a, on a call with them. And then, yeah, you kind of just chip away at that and repeat. And then hopefully you don't end up with too many things going at once and try to move in small steps so that you can roll back. In this project recently, I think we had as many as three different feature flags going and they all starting to get intermixed. And that was where I was feeling very blocked and very stressed. And the key was kind of just making a plan and then just chipping away at, at each one. And then so eventually we got all the customers moved over for one of the three pieces. And then we could say, okay, we can now everyone in the whole database is running this new code. Now we can do this next step, finish step two, then we can go to step three. And we finished that maybe a month ago where everyone was kind of on the new system. And then we were just sort of letting things run while we had all the old code and data easily revertible. And just today before a call, I was purging the old stuff, which was the sort of satisfying the one day of just deleting thousands and thousands of lines of code, you know, is supposed to be the payoff for the two months of tedious, high stress work of doing this integration stuff. It is a good feeling when you finally get to that point where you just open the PR where it's like removing tons of lines of code, but man, getting there especially with very old legacy systems, just it's a slog. It's like hiking through mud that's up to your knees. Yeah. And I think some of it is like very dull and boring, sort of going through legacy code and trying to figure out what's what. And then some of it is like very boring, but it's very high stress because it's like, okay, we have this script that's going to take all of the data that customers had set up and we're going to like move it from one schema to the other. And so you're just like, well, I need to just babysit this and make sure that nothing unexpected happens and you can do dry runs and copy data to your local instance and, and run it. But you're never going to literally test out all the edge cases until you hit go. And then you sort of feel relief that, OK, this has moved over. Nothing went wrong. But then you just sort of have this indeterminate period after where something could go wrong. And then you have to immediately switch into firefighting mode. So it's difficult, I think do that and try to weave in other work. So I'm glad that we were able to carve out time just to do this as kind of my main focus. And then the rest of the team can work on other features during that time. You'd mentioned that ARA is a pretty small team. I think you said 10. How many developers? We just have two developers that are sort of working full-time. Yeah, when I say we had time for other features, I mean my coworker Marcelo had time for other features. It's funny, there's so many pros and cons at every step. It's like being a solo developer, you can move a little bit faster, but then everything's on you. The more people you add to a development team means more stuff can get done because you're spreading the work out, but then you're also potentially waiting on people. You also have like other processes that need to get involved, right? Yeah. And, and once you get past five or 10 people, there's going to be stuff happening that you can't keep an eye on. Right. And so then you have to 
had different layers to that. I really like the size of the team and the company that we're at right now. Like it doesn't feel like we're necessarily limited and that there's lots of work to do, but it's not like we have piles and piles of work that is like fully thought out and ready to go that we could just like add more people to. There's enough people that we can still get things done. And it's a fun size to be at where you can still be like a super high leverage team. People within HubSpot or some of our customers are sort of like shocked when we tell them that like, oh yeah, we only have eight employees. They, oh, we imagined you had like 50 employees. And I think some of that is just a small scrappy startup things. And I think some of that too is just is rails and building with this kind of stack where I'm building features completely full stack front end to back end and database and deploying. And in a lot of cases, like even specking out the features and the same with Marcelo, our other developer, he's taking things from end to end. So we don't have the kind of organizational structure like built up where we don't have front end people and back end people. And we don't have this person that needs to do the database and this person that needs to review everything. And for better or worse, we can move quickly. For better or for worse. But I think you kind of touched on it. That's a huge advantage of Rails and sticking to your Rails conventions is you can, with a very small team, move very fast, ship features end to end. I'm always a little surprised when I talk to folks who are like, oh, I'm a back-end engineer over here. I'm like, oh yeah, but you definitely do something on the front end. They're like, no. I build it and then the front end integrates with it. Or I'm a front end engineer. I wait for the back end folks to finish this endpoint or that. That doesn't sound like the way I would like to work. It also, so I'm slightly biased, but it just sounds like a a little bit of a waste of time. Like I can't fathom that having that big of an advantage in the types of stuff you ship to have your dedicated back end, dedicated front end developers and they're waiting on each other all the time. Yeah. I think maybe like a purported advantage of that is that like you can specialize, but I think a lot of times like the specializing without understanding the full picture like ends up with a worse result. So to me, that's sort of what I see happening in like the front end world is people are getting more and more specialized and using more and more complicated tools and can do more, I'll say advanced things on the front end. But I also see the same people that are like, oh, this is so easy that you can just use an HTML form or, oh, file uploads are so hard. And it's like, these are not problems that we have in Rails or that you have in any sort of full stack like MVC web framework. So I don't know. I think obviously I prefer kind of the Rails way of of doing things, but it's definitely an interesting direction that the industry seems to be going in, or at least the perception of what the industry is doing as it manifests in popular dev influencers. Dev influencers. Yeah, I I don't hear too many of those problems coming from, obviously, the Rails community, but the Laravel community, the Django community. Like They just seem to be like, hey, yeah, HTML forms are great and do a lot for you. We don't need to reinvent that wheel. And that's something that I sort of am hoping to expand my own knowledge on, is like, I am actually just realizing how poor my HTML skills are from a semantic HTML standpoint. Sometimes I'll read stuff. It's usually Connor Rogers who posts something and I'm like, wait, what? HTML can do that? I'm constantly learning stuff and I want to make a more concerted effort to get better at my HTML. But even with my minimal HTML skills, it's like there's so much reinvention of the wheel, especially when you start getting into the really heavy JavaScript frameworks where it's like, but we can already do that. Yeah. I think there's some 
spectrum that people exist on of like innovating versus like sounds negative, but like exploiting in the Rails community, like we sort of get to like exploit all the work that has been done already. So we don't have to like reinvent these things and we can just capture the value created by 20 years of Rails by building applications that solve problems for people and other people like the innovation work where they're pressing the extremes of what you can do and both the client side and the back end side. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff happening on the back end too. I don't think it's a problem of the JavaScript world. I mean, when you you have people in the Rust world or Go or writing new databases or new text editors, I think there's always like the need for people that are like pushing the envelope forward. I just personally find that I'm sort of on that like late adopter trend where I don't care so much for the new shiny things anymore. And maybe that's just as I've gotten older and crankier as a person in tech, but I'm more happy to just sit and enjoy the fruits of labor and sort of like exploit all that work and reap the benefits while they're still around. I think I'm with you. I definitely find that I only have so much brain power to learn new things or to adopt it. And it it doesn't even have to be a new way of doing things. It can be a new gem. Just the, oh, I'm used to doing things with can, 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 and now action policy, I want to go learn it. It's like, unless I have a really good legitimate use case for action policy, it's just going to sit in my to-do list because I know can, can, can. I don't have to think about it. I just want to work on the shipping the feature that I need to ship with as little friction as possible. So I think that's some of it too, where it's like, where do you want to spend your time and energy? And there's no right or wrong answer there. Some people really want to learn Every single way of handling X, Y, or Z thing, all the existing gems, and then potentially write their own versions. Like, ah, I took the bits I liked from this and the bits I liked from this and dropped all the stuff I didn't like and made my own version. But I definitely find myself sticking to what I know unless I absolutely need to. Yeah, I think it goes back to the the classic explore versus exploit mental model and the most clear example to me is you're trying to decide what to have for dinner. It's do you want to explore and try a new restaurant or like try a new recipe? Or do you just want to pick something that you know is going to be good? And people vary wildly on what their preference is. And I think I probably fall on the like, I would rather just do something that I know is going to be good. But I think there is some value in having some percentage of the time you're doing the exploratory stuff. And so I don't know, some of that too, when I earlier said, like, I think some of it is with age, I don't think maybe age or like time in the industry is necessarily the root. I think it's just like I explored a lot. And so I've seen some of the other things. And like I have worked in other languages and I've worked on React projects and I've worked on JavaScript single page applications. And it's like, oh, I explored over there. I've decided that that's not what I like doing or those are not solving problems that I have. So I think sometimes we have to be careful because if you don't let people do that exploration on their own, they may feel like, oh, I'm only doing this because this is what I learned and they don't feel like they will ever go do that. And certainly I would say that if I stuck with the first tech stack that I learned and was competent at, I would be in a very different spot. But there should always be room and budget for being adventurous and exploring. But we have jobs to do. We have things that need to get done. And sometimes that means we almost would rather just spend our mental energy not exploring saying hey i know how to solve this problem it's done an issue too is that for a lot of people they feel like they need to 
explore these things or get experience in them. And so their job is like, well, there's eight hours in the day where I could be like gaining experience to get what I think I want, which is a high paying remote job writing React to like a big Silicon Valley thing type company. And I think that leads to a lot of downstream effects where people that don't have the same problems as these companies or these teams are trying to get experience on the tools that they use so they can go work for those teams. And every time I see someone writing their blog on a serverless Lambda function, and that's fine if you're wanting to play with it, but you're clearly not interested in the writing aspect of blogging. You're more interested in practicing this skill, which is fine. Just don't sort of chastise someone that does want to just write a static web page. Yeah, for sure. There's so many ways to explore and people have so many different goals. There should never, or I don't want to say never because it's too definitive, but I don't think we need to be as hostile towards one another as we very frequently are just because we use different tech stacks or we go with different things or we're attempting to do something new. Well, you know, in the Ruby community, we have that saying, Matt's is nice, so we subtweet and shit on other languages on Twitter. I think that's how the acronym goes. Something like that. Yeah, I can never yeah. remember. It's a, it's a long one. Matt's is nice. So yeah, that's a long acronym. <laughs> I was going to try and miniswan that, but I don't even remember afterwards. But speaking of exploring and adventuring, what is something cool, new, or interesting that you've discovered worked with, built yourself. It doesn't have to be coding related, but it is code and the coding coders who code it. So if you want it to be coding related, absolutely. So the one thing that I've been sort of excited about, or I think is like a new and novel thing that I shared a little bit about on Twitter was we recently kind of did an overhaul of the mailers in our app. And I think mailers in Rails are like the least appreciated part that's where like the worst code in your app probably is is in your your mailers we do all kinds of stuff that we wouldn't tolerate elsewhere so i was kind of cleaning that up and as part of that i always like look around and i'm like what exists out in other ecosystems for doing this because nobody likes writing transactional emails like it feels like one of those things that should be a solved problem to like send someone like a password reset email or like a weekly digest and i feel like every time you're like trying to reinvent it and like, oh, I want to use Tailwind to style this, but I need to like inline the styles and how is this going to render in Outlook? And so I found this other project that is called, I think the domain is like react.email. And it's an interesting project where they're building emails with React components. And I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And they had a nice template gallery where it was, oh, here's how you can recreate all these trends. Like they had here's the GitHub password reset email. And it's like, oh yeah, like you can see how it looks more like what we would typically see for a view component than a bunch of gnarly HTML table layouts to make a button centered in in an email. It's like, oh, this is interesting. We're not going to use React in our project. That's sort of, but I, like, I started looking into how did it actually work? And it's like, oh, what they've sort of actually done is just they've taken these battle-hardened email templates that you can find if you look on your email service provider, if you use Postmark or SendGrid or MailChimp or any of these, they have templates that are designed for this. And like Postmark, for instance, has templates for all the common transactional types. And so what they've kind of done is they just take those and then slice those up into little components so that you don't have to know the implementation details. So you can just say like, this is an email button and under the hood, it's rendering like some weird table 
stuff. But to you as the developer, you just read a button. And I was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. So I rewrote our email system using this. And so I use view component for that. And I just used like a, an email namespace for that. So we still have the same HTML template, the ERB templates for our mailers. But now instead of trying to fiddle with the layout for everything, we have render email colon colon header and you pass it in the text. And so this was really nice and it has a lot of other benefits. If you want to be testing your components, your mailers, which historically people don't really test the rendering of mailers because it's just a giant mess. Like you can test the view components. But the thing that I really liked was it was easier to do the component previews for the components. Now Rails has the like mailer previews, but a lot of times those depend on you like actually having data that exists in the database. And it's more of a developer thing, whereas you could see how we could have a previewer for all of the templates that would fit next to the rest of our design system stuff. So that's just like an idea I've been exploring. I know there's a couple of things in the community of people that have taken this idea and have, they're working on gems and bundles and things like that. But it's actually not that difficult to just do in your own app. Presumably you've copy pasted like one of these HTML like reset templates into your mailers and even just extracting that into a layout and then figuring out how you want to render like a button or a label or, you know, a box of text. I think has just made it a lot easier working with our, our email stuff. So that's kind of the coding thing I wanted to share. That's a good one. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this, but I'm going to do it anyway. If I get yelled at, oh well. Uh, we recently, Podia, because that's where I work now, just overhauled our... We have like an email feature where, where our creators can go in and build really nice custom email templates and all this stuff. And then we do something that I had not heard of until I started at Podia. We render the emails with React. And I can't go into the implementation details of that yet because I haven't looked at that code just because it's React and no thank you. But allegedly, it's pretty awesome. And it's cool that we can make very custom email templates for our creators. They can make very cool custom email templates because we're using React to give them their own colors and all this jazz. But you say all of this, yeah, yeah, we can use view components and we can do all this stuff. And I'm just like, ah, that sounds lovely. That's right. When I get into this email stuff, I'm going to have to touch over a lot of React. Bummer. It's all the same basic ideas. It's just, you know, a matter of how much JavaScript you have to install to, to deal with it. And how much JavaScript you have to look at. And yeah. I'd like to say that I like to be good enough with JavaScript that I don't have to write a lot of it, which is why I like stimulus. I feel like if you're competent with JavaScript, you can get a lot done with stimulus controllers. I'm going to be dipping my toes back into React because we have some React stuff in our storefront or our site creators and now our email stuff. So there is some React. It's mostly static HTML and we do a lot of view components and stuff, but there's enough React that I'm going to have to go back and learn it. It's been years, but... And something like Podia has the whole extra layer of being customizable by the end user. So there's probably a lot more involved in making a generic email builder that generates emails versus what I would say is probably the more typical case in Rails of like, you are the developer, you are writing the seven to 15 different emails that you send out in your application. And yeah, you don't need so much flexibility and customization. You just need to make it not look terrible. Yeah, for sure. This is one of those things where I think React is being used 
very appropriately. We have a high level of client-side interaction going on. We have a high level of customization by our end users. And I think that's, in a way, what React is kind of designed for, built for, excels at. And I think that's how React and tools like it should be used is like, they should be the right tool for the job, not like, oh, I'm going to use React to like render my static web page just because if that's what you want to do, if that's what you know, go for it. But I think the push to get everyone to do everything in React was sort of a mistake. We didn't need to ship these giant JavaScript bundles to render mostly static content, but I digress. Not going to get into that. What conferences are you planning on going to for the remainder of 2023, maybe even into 2024 if you're planning that far out? I don't actually have anything on the books at the moment. So I know you and I got to meet up at Blue Ridge Ruby earlier this year, which was yeah. which was nice. I'm not going to be able to make it to Rails World. I was very excited to throw my hat into the ring. It wasn't meant to be this year, but we'll try again next year. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of people that are in that boat of, yeah, I didn't get to go. Tickets sold out too quickly, but there is Rocky Mountain Ruby at the same time. And that's a little easier if you're in the States than flying across an ocean. I feel for all of our European friends when they have to come to Ruby or RailsConf stateside. So Rocky Mountain Ruby is the same time. If you do feel like flying, I think RubyConf Thailand is the same. Like there's three conferences, the same dates. It's pretty wild. Yeah, I was looking forward to Rails SAS in LA, but I think that I'm not sure if that's been scheduled yet. The next edition of that, I'm not sure if they have the a 2023 date of that or that'll be 2024, but I'd say in all likelihood, that's probably the next conference I'll be going to. That was a good one. You weren't at the first one, right? I don't remember seeing you. No, I was not. Okay. Yeah, it was. it's a very good one. Andrew goes above and beyond for that conference. That is a very unique conference in the rail space. I've got a movie pick as well. Okay. Cool movie to share. So I recently watched the Blackberry movie. I think it was okay. Blackberry. I was I was waiting for it to be Barbie or Oppenheimer and be like, yeah, cool. Yeah. No, no. That's, no. that's what everyone's I, talking about. Good job, Matt. I haven't seen either of those yet, but I get very behind on movies for whatever reason. <laughs> I can watch like 20 hours of a TV series and be like, yeah, this mm-hmm. is fine. But if it's a 90 minute movie, I'm like, this is too much of a of a commitment. <laughs> so yeah. So I watched the Blackberry movie, which is it's about the founding of Blackberry and sort of their rise and then like very quick fall. And it's in the same vein as like the social network type movie. So whether it is factually accurate or not, it was pretty entertaining. And I think the subject matter was interesting to developers and the audience. I sort of was entering the working world, like right as the first iPhone is coming out and the app store and all that. And it was interesting kind of seeing like, oh yeah, like BlackBerry was such a huge thing. I was right on the cusp when that stopped being a thing and suddenly everyone had smartphones and Nobody really remembers the predecessor. Yeah. Didn't BlackBerry have their own messaging format or markdown? One of the, like the big killer features at the time was like you used to have to pay for text messages and BlackBerry had basically like free encrypted messaging, but you could only send it to other Blackberries. So kind of like Apple has now with iMessage or app. But at the time that was like such a great deal because nobody was really texting because it costs five cents for every text message that you sent and you could easily run up a bill. 
I don't think it's spoilers because everyone sort of knows how the story goes for Blackberry and Apple. But one of the interesting parts in the movie is when they talk about like Blackberry was more of like the engineering heavy led company. And they're like, well, you know, these new iPhones, like they're going to crash the network and like they're going to be using so much data. And they sort of realize that the phone companies don't care about how much data they use because now they're going to be switching to selling data plans instead of if you remember back in the day, you had like phone minutes. So it was all about how many minutes you were talking on the phone. And now it's about how much data you're using. So it was in a way it was the technical feat of the BlackBerry was like, oh, we have much less data usage. But in a way that was like against the incentives of the telecom companies who now wanted you to actually be using lots of data. So just kind of an interesting little quirk of how something that is technically better or like better engineering is sort of worse in business and the customer ultimately doesn't care. Someone's got to make money somewhere, right? That's generally how the world works. Cool. So is there anything else you want to get into? I know you said you had some bullet points. Did we touch on all of the bullet points? One of the kind of like evergreen problems that I have that I never have sort of landed on a satisfying solution that I came across again recently was doing custom dropdowns in Rails. So the Rails form helpers are really nice in that you can make a select tag and you just pass in the idea of stuff and it works great until you want to style it to look different. And then it's sort of, you're often in the land of JavaScript heavy solutions. And there's been a lot of advances in the front end community around headless UIs. And there's a lot of new, shiny, really polished and really well done UI toolkits, but they are all seeming to be built on React or Vue or Svelte or similar tools. And so I've just been kind of like always looking for the Railsy way of doing that. And so I'm always eager to hear if anyone has done anything that has worked well lately. And if not, then I can also share a little bit about the most recent iteration of this, which is still not fully the, uh, I don't know what it's called. The, the golden toilet. Is that what it's called? I don't know. What's in (laughs) Indiana Jones, the monkey golden monkey statue or whatever. Oh yeah. The head. Yeah. What that gets the boulder. Do you have any approaches for this that you've used in the past? No, I don't think I've ever had to do anything super fancy. Anytime it's like, oh, the Rails helper doesn't do the job for us. It basically is just, all right, well, write in regular HTML or regular what have you. I seem to run into this problem when you start having like dropdowns that have, let's say, more than like 100 options in them. So then people are like, well, I want to be able to search and so then it's like, well, this isn't really a drop down anymore. It's like type ahead, autocomplete type thing. But you also want it to, as much as you can, still stick to the Rails form convention so that it's just like, yep, at the end of the day, I submit this form and it has the ID. So like there's a lot of solutions and I think there's even some solutions built into Rails of using like a remote option that will call out to a JSON endpoint and you can render that back or you can render HTML dynamically into the page, but then you run into the problem where sometimes you've pre-selected an option. And then if you're like dynamically loading the options from the server, that option doesn't come back and all kinds of stuff like that. So where I've ended up right now, I don't think I have a great solution for that dynamic one, but for at least if you have dropdowns and you need some like searching and custom rendering, I have been more and more doing the pattern of using some of these front-end libraries, but trying to find ones that play nicely with just like vanilla HTML. And so the one that I've lately been using is called Tom Select, which is apparently a pun on Tom Selig, 
it's like a pretty basic in that it does what all these libraries do. There's like a jQuery UI one, there's selectize one, there's one that's called like select two. But I think the interesting thing that I've done to try to make it a little bit more Railsy is a lot of these, once you start using the JavaScript library to manage the form field, you need to also let it manage the rendering. So instead of using your Rails view to render the content in, in the dropdown, you start having to say like, oh, we're going to like pass it as JavaScript and then it has some rendering. But the interesting quirk that I've been playing around with is using like a templating library. I'm just using like the one from Lodash, but like using a templating library and then passing that template in with a template HTML tag in my Rails view. So it's still in your view where you're sort of defining what it looks like and all your CSS classes and stuff are in there. And you can sort of see right where you're querying that like this is a dropdown of your current account dot users. And you can see below it, there's like a little template tag in HTML snippet that shows how it's going to render. And you can see, oh, I'm going to be calling user.name and like user.email below it. So you can still kind of have that control, but then you have a stimulus controller that sort of transforms that into the JavaScript. And I've been happy with doing that. But like I said, I think it's like one of the big unsolved problems in Rails is how to do some of these richer form inputs while still being able to leverage the like super powerful form builder stuff that comes in Rails. Luckily for me, at least, I haven't run into that particular problem. Sounds like an interesting problem to solve, but that is something that I think outside of the form builders is ever so slightly lacking in Rails and has dramatically improved since Hotwire. But I think the front end is still that bit of the Wild West for Rails. There's Now there's a lot of different options as far as loading up JavaScript or SAS, but then we get into hey, how do we solve this thing that we don't have a Rails helper for? And it's like, eh, who knows? Yeah, It would be nice to get something a little more robust in the helpers section, but it's also one of those each business is going to need to solve it a different way because it needs to mash their business. And yeah, I think really what's going to need to happen is Basecamp's going to need to have the problem. Once Basecamp has the problem, then it'll be in Rails. Yeah, and I think that is like probably, I know it, sort of a joke, but I think it's probably more true when it comes to the form builder stuff. And that I think a lot of the early form builder stuff that came out of Basecamp, like if you think about the UI of Basecamp, it's actually not like you might think a typical like CRUD application is with like lots of forms and data and tons of model validations and like multi-step forms that a lot of these like line of business applications are. I know even somewhat recently, like a lot of the validation stuff that when DHH would post some code snippets they're like oh we just use like basic html validations and if you go inspect the element and like fiddle with it and try to submit something like we catch it in the database but they're not doing as much stuff with oh we need to like validate and render the inline errors and just like i think a lot of the data that they deal with it's just less constrained right if you think about a crm it's like this is just a text field you can put whatever you want in here and with hey it's writing an email or you're like selecting the recipient there's not a lot of stuff you can do. Whereas I think a lot of people reach for Rails when they're building like line of business applications and it's, oh, I'm building like an aircraft engine maintenance system. And like, once I select this part, then I have to like enter a serial number that must be within this range. And if I change this form field, then these other three form fields need to go. And if you ever look at any of the 37 signals products, it's like, they don't really have very complicated forms. And so that's why I don't think 
Rails has the greatest support for these things. Or like you said, each business has to kind of reinvent their own way of doing a multi-step form wizard or some fancy control. And whether or not Rails can do anything to solve that, I think there's some work underway. And I think there probably will be a solution akin to what happened with view components, where as long as we can figure out the right hooks to put into Rails, then you can sort of slide things in more easily. But I don't think we'll ever really get some of these very specific workflows and forms stuff in the framework itself. Yeah. And I think some would argue that's sort of the way it should be. It should take care of the stuff that is consistent almost always across the board. And then you're free to solve your business problems the way that you see fit. It's a good ethos. I think the table stakes have sort of shifted more recently in the past few years of like, Maybe it would be in the past, the Rails core team would say things like Rails is not your application. So like you should decide how you want to implement modals or dropdowns or some of these UI components. And I think slowly as like the industry has has shifted, I think people like want to spend less time on that stuff. And like there are at this point, like very clear established patterns and best practices. And so I think there is an opportunity for, you know, that to happen. And that's what we are seeing in the JavaScript world with some of these UI tools where it's like, we don't need everyone to like rebuild a dropdown menu because you're probably not going to handle the accessibility or keyboard shortcuts or focus control and all that stuff. And it's not really unique to anyone's application. So I think sometimes maybe Rails just goes too far in, in saying that, you know, Rails is not your application and you should decide how these things work. It's like, well, there's probably not that many actually different implementations of some of these things. And I think it could be a nice win for the community if some of these things could be more standardized. I agree. There's a few people working on them now. There's some Rails UI kits that are supposed to be very drop-in, feel very Railsy. I think maybe that's the first step. And then some of the very common patterns we see will get upstreamed. And like you said, way that view components made it easy to just say, hey, render this object. The object will define a render in and tell you what its output is. That was directly because they, hey, that's how we want view components to be able to get rendered. Without view components, we wouldn't have that. So maybe that's the step. Maybe all the folks working on the UI kits are going to save us. We'll see. I don't think that that, at least for me, is like, super compelling but it's always hard to see and like we talked about earlier like balancing the explore exploit trade-off of well does it make more sense to try to integrate some new project that came out a month ago versus rebuilding inside of our own app versus sacrificing some of the user experience for something that is a little bit more battle tested so all kinds of trade-offs and i'm excited to see what comes out of it but i think it's probably something that's on a two to three year time horizon before we see any kind of significant changes on how that happens in Rails. Yeah, I agree with you. It's going to take some time. I mean, that's sort of like an abstraction. Abstraction should sort of occur naturally. If you force it, you end up rewriting the whole thing because you didn't need it in the first place. You mentioned it in the beginning, but this is the show wrap up. So we'll mention it again. Where can folks find you on the internet? Yeah, I'm mostly on Twitter. My handle is underscore Swanson. And I have a newsletter and blog where I write longer form stuff at boringrails.com. I will include those in the show notes. Thanks for coming on, Matt. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for reaching out and asking to come on. I always appreciate when folks tell me that they want to come on and talk about stuff. So I appreciate you reaching out and coming on. And yeah, no problem. It's somewhat selfish in that I listen to a lot of these podcasts and so 
when I get caught up on episodes, I'm like, well, I need more content. So <laughs> I better ping them and see if they need someone to record an episode so that I can get it back in the feed. There you go. Always happy to have someone on who has anything at all to talk about. So thanks for coming on, man. And we will hopefully catch up at a conference soon. Otherwise, see you on the internet. Yep. Good to see you.